Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Well, hello. We are here today to finish our Word of God sermon series. Uh, we've been asking major questions around kind of the historicity of the scriptures. What is the Bible? Is it really credible? Is it really divine? And today what we're going to ask is, is it really for me? Like, is God's Word, is the Holy Bible, is that really for you? Is it something that just exists and it's out there like some sort of piece of literature? Or is it something designed for you? Is it personal? Is it something that you should consider having as a a sort of a central part of your life and your faith journey? The question really is, how is this collection of, of books and letters from ancient writers about God and written by others, how is that for me? And I'm going to break this down into two parts today. We're going to essentially do this in two different parts. Part one is why I think you should pay attention to Scripture, like why, why it's for you. Uh, that's on me to do. I've got to convince you of that. I think you should pay attention. Part two is going to be what keeps you from paying attention to Scripture. Why aren't you engaging in it? And, and that's really going to be on you. So I can help you with the first part. The second part is you're going to have to do some work uh, on your own. Well, I was, to be honest, I was going to call part one the uninteresting part and part two the interesting part. But thinking about that, it wasn't the best strategy. I, th- I was going to Jedi mind trick you and lower your expectations. And then when you were like, part one was actually pretty good, uh, that was like my reverse psychology. I'm not going to do that. So there's no reason for me to tell you. So let's just, let's move on. Okay. Part one. Part one, uh, we're going to call Marx, Jefferson, and Jesus. Part one is Marx, Jefferson, and Jesus. I think this will be memorable, and I, also, I think it's pretty straightforward as well. Um, and the subtitle of this part of our sermon today, the subtitle is Why the Bible is for You. And so um, you're hooked already, I can tell. You're hooked. So let's ask a question. What is a Marxist? What is a Marxist? Well, a Marxist, at, at its core, is a follower of Karl Marx— in his ideologies. How do you follow Karl Marx, who is no longer with us? Well, you would follow Karl Marx through his words, in his words, and, and then writings about him, right? Well, what about Thomas Jefferson? You ever heard of a Jeffersonian Republican? It's a thing. You can Google that. Not now. Don't leave. Um, but you can. How would you be a follower of Jeffersonian? How would you be a follower of Thomas Jefferson in his ideologies? Like, how, how do you follow him? Well, you would follow him through his words and the writings about him. Okay, see where this is going? I think you see this. Are you familiar with the term Christian? What is a Christian? A Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ and his ideologies. How do you follow him? Well, you follow Jesus through his words and the writings about him. So the question becomes, if that's true, if to be a Marxist you do you follow the words and the writings of Marx and, and the things said about him. And to be a Jeffersonian, you do the same for him. And to be a Christian, you do the same for Jesus. The question becomes, where do you find these writings for Jesus? And the answer is, is I mean, look, we're a little obvious so far, but the answer is in the Bible. This is where the recorded words of Christ are. This is the writings and the firsthand witness of Christ. It's all here. Jesus came 
himself, he came to uphold the holiness of the text. So we read in Matthew chapter 5. This is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. He's kind of restating a lot of things and, and revolutionizing the way people think about things, but he's careful to caution them on the way that they treat the, the, the writers, the prophets, the, the folks like Moses who've given us all this wisdom. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, or, or maybe your Bible would say not a jot or a tittle or a stroke or a comma, but not, a, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, what, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So let's take a short aside. We're going to deal with what he just said. Let's take a short aside. And I said, he says, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law. And like I said, that may be translated different in the Bible you have, but what this is, what Jesus is referring to, Hebrew speakers would most likely have identified this part of, of what Jesus is saying as the yod. Jesus is referring to the yod. The yod is uh, the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And as part of, you know, it's kind of one of these calligraphy kind of things where you can you write the letters and it doesn't feel all, they don't have the font that we have, you know, it's Helvetica or it's Times New Roman. The original writing of this, handwritten in ink, part of the construction of the yod, there was something that is essentially called a dot. There's a little piece of it that goes with it that makes the letter. Here's what I love about it. Jesus, in saying, referring to the scripture, Jesus says, it it all still stands. I'm here to fulfill it all. I'm not here to erase it. Down to the smallest piece of the smallest letter. I love this because it's another win for humility and for smallness. It's, it's also Jesus making a big deal out of the smallest bits of God's word. And so if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, and Jesus says that all of this stuff really matters, then even if we follow the logic— Jesus says, even the smallest dots and bits, even the smallest strokes and, and the prepositions and the constructions, even the smallest little bits. I mean, the dot on the letter Yod is like, it's like the size of an apostrophe in a paragraph where you go, well, what does that even matter? And Jesus is saying the, the little things in God's word, they matter. They aren't optional. They matter. And so if Jesus thinks they matter, and Jesus is telling us they matter, then we have to believe that they matter. And listen, there's a sliver, there's a sliver of, of modern Christianity. We would say they're theologically liberal. Now, I'm going to make really clear. I'm not saying they're politically liberal. I'm saying they're theologically liberal. Those are two different things. Theologically liberal is that we're still kind of interpreting as we go. We're still kind of changing. The culture sometimes convinces us that we could take this part of Scripture and twist it here, and we can take this and reinterpret it through a modern lens, whereas a theologically conservative viewpoint would hold to a, more, a little bit more literal reading of the text and a, and a, more, uh, a less changing, less dynamic version of what does it mean. Um, if it meant that in Jesus' time, it still means that, regardless of how the culture has updated around it. And that's not a full reading of the differences between a theologically liberal side of the spectrum and a theologically conservative, but in a general sense, um, that's kind of what I'm saying. 
But we have to be careful because in our modern world, there is a growing sect sliver of uh, Christianity that is trending in a theologically liberal direction. And what, what some would say, I've heard said before, there's books about it, what we really need to do, you'll hear this sometimes when you're getting in an argument, what you really need to do, though, if you think about it, if we're Christians, we're, we're followers of Jesus Christ, the things that really matters is just the words of Jesus. So you're having an argument about some hot-button topic of the day or, or some, some part of modern life, and somebody goes, well, Jesus didn't even speak on that. Jesus never even referred to that. Jesus had nothing to do with that. And so how are we to say that you can't do this or you can't be that or you can't believe this if Jesus never even addressed it? And so then people begin to, to put their beliefs onto Jesus and go, well, it seems like Jesus really loved this sort of person or this sort of vulnerable thing. Or, and so Jesus would probably approve of this, that, or the other as well which is kind of strange logic, but it's something people do. And people will say, leave aside the Old Testament, and even to some degree, leave aside the teachings of Paul or Peter in the New Testament, and and just focus on the words of Jesus. And if we just do that, then we can't go wrong. So if Jesus didn't teach on, on like landscaping, where you should put your your flower beds, if Jesus didn't teach on landscaping, then you can't really argue with it. You just got to, everybody can choose their own path. If Jesus didn't teach on on abortion or gender issues or homosexuality or cryptocurrency. If Jesus didn't teach on these things, those things, how did Jesus use the internet? Well, he isn't on the internet. It didn't exist. So because Jesus didn't teach on it, you just kind of make up your own ideas. And it's a really dangerous way to approach the scripture and a dangerous way to approach the followership of Jesus because if we read the words of Jesus, if we're going to try to make it up for ourselves on anything he didn't address directly— Well, that only works as long as you ignore that Jesus said to go ahead and make sure you're paying attention to all of Scripture. So if you follow Jesus, reasonably you must acknowledge that he's interested in you not only knowing but obeying all of Scripture. Paul reiterates this in his own letters. So just for effect, let's read it as well. Paul says in Romans 15, 4, he says, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction— that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So, so Paul is saying in the Bible, we might have hope. If we would just hold to what was written, there's hope in there for us. Earlier in this series, we referenced 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Paul writes, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. All scripture is breathed out. We went through this. It's literally divinely inspired, breathed out in, in, through God's spirit and human hands— We get the scripture, and it's valuable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We're hearing that the Bible is divinely inspired wisdom and truth, and if you want to follow Jesus, the Bible is here. It's here for your encouragement and your endurance, for teaching and correction and and training that you may be complete and equipped for every good work. What is the good work we're talking about? It's following Jesus and living a life in his way. The Bible, in some senses, and and no metaphor for the Bible ever captures what the Bible is. You'll hear somebody say, the Bible's like a roadmap for life. And you're like, well, sort of, but not at all. Or the Bible's like a, you know, and you just kind of go through those. and You want to reject most of them. So I'm going to do one just so I can reject it myself. But I kind of think of like a surgeon going through med school. You've got to be a surgeon. You've got to go through med school, all the, the residency and the rotations. And what is all that for? What is the study for? What is the textbook for? What is the rotation for? What is the residency for? 
It all exists to help the surgeon eventually practice medicine. For the follower of Jesus, the Bible in some sense is some part of that med school internship rotation residency process. It is the the textbook. It is the roadmap. It is the, the training manual. It is all those things, but it's also the active and alive voice of God speaking into our lives. Why? Well, it exists so that, according to the Bible, it exists so that we might begin to practice the Jesus way in real time. So let's agree that to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, we need to be reading his words and God's word because it is for you. It is for you and it's for your good. So if you're going to be a Christian, this is going to have to be a part of your life. That's what Jesus would say. It is empowering and equipping and encouraging. It is for you. So, so that's part one. Part two, let's call part two oil changes, taxes, and TikTok. Okay, part two, part one, we had Marx, Jefferson, and Jesus. Part two, we're going to call oil changes, taxes, and TikTok. Remember, this is the part I thought you might like more, except that this is the part that's on you, so you're going to deal. The subtitle for part two is, why, why don't you get into the Bible? Like, what's, what is happening? Why don't you do this? I think the best reminder or, or, or illustration that we can come up with to kind of get us into this, I said oil changes. You know the little oil change reminder sticker? that uh, if you take your car to an oil change place, they, they stick up in the top left part of your windshield. And it's got their little logo on it. And they write the date. And you can never tell if it's the date of service to panic you. Like a month later, we're like, I thought I just got an oil change. But man, I, go, I was due a month ago. And then they write the, the next mileage date, your next service is due at. And it says 3,000 miles from when you got the previous one. But I mean... The manual in your car says 5,000. In synthetic oil these days, it should be 7,000. But then I've heard people say that, honestly, you change it too much, that might be bad for the car. Maybe it's 10,000, and nobody knows, but definitely the oil change place wants it to be every 3,000. And if you're thinking about this right now, you might just be thinking that unless you just got an oil change, you might be thinking if you need an oil change right now. It's what you're thinking. I wonder if I need an oil change. When's the last time I got an oil change? I don't know. I know when I did, and I know that it's a long time after whenever the number on the sticker said to do it. I put off an oil change like everyone else. I think almost everyone, unless you just love your car. Some people, I get you, you're there. Some people just love their car. And as soon as that thing hits the mileage mark it needs to hit, I'm taking it in, and it's, I got a baby cloth diaper. I'm wiping down the handle and handing the keys to the mechanic, and please take care of it. Change your oil. Let's, and we're not, I'm not that guy. I just go, I mean... If I have nothing else to do on earth, then maybe after I take a nap, I'll think about maybe going to get the oil change. And I probably not good, right? Not great for the car. But it's not something that I'm excited to do. I can always justify putting it off a little bit longer because there's always something more important and pressing. I can always get an oil change tomorrow. Why don't I get an oil change on time? Why don't you, now that you know you need one, go check. Why don't you get an oil change on time? The reality is because you just don't care that much. It, one, it doesn't feel all that consequential if you wait another day. But two, you just don't care. On the list of things you look forward to doing, oil change comes in somewhere ahead of dental work and maybe right behind renewing your license at the B&B. Like that's somewhere in there, it's stop and get an oil change. And even like there's some places where you have to sit in that tiny little waiting room with this stuffy and the air kind of smells like oil and they have you know, either the cooking channel or a political channel on way too loud in the waiting room, and it's pretty awful. Or um, you do the drive-through oil change place. I've done that before, and that's better, but you're still like, I'm sitting here 
for 30 minutes. It's cold. I don't know. Do I want to do this? I think I've just confessed. I don't really love getting an oil change. But why don't I do it? Because I just don't care that much. And, And real talk for all of us, let's be honest, we don't do stuff that we don't care about. We typically don't do stuff we don't care about, especially stuff that takes time out of the stuff we do care about. I would rather do just about anything than some of the things I get asked to do, dentist, oil change, whatever, taxes. Speaking of taxes, let's talk about taxes. Taxes are like an oil change that happens once a year and is really important. The the funny thing about taxes is we even set a date about taxes. We know, everybody knows the date. Once you have to start paying taxes, you know when taxes are due. You know the whole story. You know what it takes. And we all, everybody I know, seems to dread it. I was in my accountant's office two weeks ago. And I I walked in and I was talking to the the woman at the front desk who kind of like is the air traffic control for this whole building. And I asked her, I was like, how are you feeling about it? Here it comes. She goes, today is the official start date. And, And she gave me this look like, oh boy, like it is a lot. Even the people who work on taxes don't like tax season. No one likes tax season. Why? Because it's complicated. It's not even like just the oil change. We just have other things we'd rather be doing. Taxes feel complicated. Did I get everything? Did I do it right? What if I do it wrong? What if I gave my accountant the wrong stuff and he, and he or she does it wrong? What if I get audited? I don't even know what that means, but apparently the government just comes to live in your house and tumps out your drawers and, and looks through all your papers to see if you like are hiding. I don't know. I don't know what happens. I'm terrified of being audited. When I used to do my own taxes and it said, do you want to buy audit protection? They could have charged me anything. And out of pure fear, I'd be like, yes, I will take your audit defense program. $6,000, yes, I'm happy to do it. I'd rather pay you than understand what auditing is about. Why am I talking about taxes? Well, I said with oil change, the real talk there is we don't like to do things that we don't like to do. If we don't care about it, we just don't want to do it. With the taxes pieces, we avoid and don't like to do things that we don't really understand. The thing we don't like about taxes at the end of the day is I don't really understand the whole process. I know I'm supposed to put all this stuff into this sheet, or I know I'm supposed to prepare all these forms, or I know I need to get online and figure out which form I'm supposed to use and then turn it. We don't really get it. And when we don't understand stuff, we avoid it because it makes us feel small. It makes us feel inadequate. So what do we do instead of oil changes and taxes? Well, we entertain ourselves for sure. We do anything else. I mean, anything's better than those things. And so here we enter the world of TikTok. Now, I'm not going to show you TikTok videos or claim that I've ever even been on TikTok. I haven't, but I understand what it is. TikTok, let's use that as a placeholder for just about anything that briefly wastes our time and keeps us from thinking about important or urgent things. So maybe you play golf, or maybe you like to go shopping, maybe you're into podcasts, maybe you have some other hobby, you're whittling or you're cooking, I don't know what you do. Maybe you're re-watching a show. This might hit home, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Maybe you're re-watching a show that you've watched multiple times already, but you just really like going back through it because it's familiar, and I keep it on in the background. You know, I really like season six of The Office. I really like that one. Season seven of Seinfeld, that one's really good. I like that season. Oh, I like this episode. Turn it up. It's coming on again. I like this one. And, and it's almost like, like people in our lives we're having conversations with, except it's, it's just a show I've already seen. Sometimes we watch a new show we don't even like just because it's better to zone out than to actually do the thing I need to do. And this happens all the time. I know people all the time are always suggesting to me shows I should watch because they're shows they watched and they sort of liked, but they think, but you'd really like it. I get that a lot. Maybe that happens to you. Oh, you'd love it. You'd love that show. You would love it, 
You'd love it. Have you ever heard? And then it's always, have you ever heard of this show? And it doesn't matter what the show is. It's always, have you ever heard of it? And I say, ah, vaguely or no, it doesn't matter. And the response is, you would love it. You should watch it. You'd love it. Um, I will confess the best way to get me to not watch something is to tell me I would love it because I'm rebellious by nature and contrarian by nature. And so the 25 or 30 times a year someone says you would love this show, I, I might as well have a list and I just mark, no, I'm not going to watch that ever again. We all do dumb things though. We watch sports. Wow, the Cavs beat the Spurs. Wasn't that cool? That was awesome. Guess what? They're playing again in three nights and then 80 more times before they get to the playoffs, which almost everybody makes now because that's worth some money. And so we just watch sports. I love sports, 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 sports. I love sports. Or I'm going to learn this new internet dance with my friends, and that's kind of fun. It's communal, doing it with friends. Or, I mean, some of you are gluttons for punishment. You know what you're waiting for? You're waiting for yard work. The, the weather gets warm, and you get excited. You're like, I can't wait to get my hands into the dirt. And sometimes I'm so wanting to avoid other things in the spring taxes that I'm like, I like yard work too. I would love to work in the yard rather than prepare a W-2 or whatever it's supposed to be. I, I get it. We will do just about anything as long as anything is not the things we don't care about or understand. We'll do anything if it's not the things we don't care about or understand. So the question for you is, we kind of go through the list of what are those things. The question for you is, what keeps you from engaging in Scripture? What keeps you from reading the Bible? What keeps you from knowing God's word? What keeps you from really actually following Jesus and his teachings? What keeps you from that? Is it stuff you, is it because you don't, you don't care? Is it stuff that, is it because you don't understand it? I think the answer is pretty revealing in that the answer to most of those questions is just about anything. Just about anything is what keeps me from reading the Bible. Because I can always find five more minutes in a day. And so either the Bible is like an oil change, we just don't really care that much, or the Bible is like taxes, and we just don't really understand it. And I actually believe that, I, I actually think you care. I think most followers of Jesus care about the Bible, they care about following Jesus. They care about obeying his words and, and digging into his character. They care about the, the gospel narrative and the picking up of God's story through the text. I think most people care, and most Christians find that understanding is the real hurdle. That, yeah, we get distracted, and yes, we, we run into things that, that slow us down on the journey, but really the, the end of it is it's understanding. I had someone in my office this week who was like, man, I can read it. I can do it for an hour a day. And I'm somewhere in Numbers or Leviticus or I don't know where I am. And it just sort of all blends together. And I get to the end of a week and I've read, you know, 50 pages of the Bible. I spent hours reading my Bible and I don't know one thing that it said or what it means in my life. That's taxes. That's all that is. I'm trying. I just don't get it. And I think most people live there on some level. And it doesn't matter how much further you get on the kind of the maturity road. There's always something that feels a little distant. I don't, ah, what does that mean? What is that for? How do I apply that? I think understanding is our hurdle. So I get the question all the time, where do I start? Okay, I want to start reading the Bible where? Or what am I supposed to see when I read it? Or what am I supposed to learn in this passage? What about all the confusing stuff and the mysterious stuff and the mystical stuff? What about the prophecies? What if I told you those were all the wrong questions? Those questions and those fears, they're not invalid. They're valid questions. I think they're the wrong starting point. 
I think those are academic fears at the end of the day. And, and we don't get started in the Bible in our country, in our, in our modern times, in the Western world. We don't get started because we're Western people and we have academic questions and wirings. None of those questions get to the point. Because the point, I think, today and the point that you need to receive about why the Bible matters and why the Bible is for you is ultimately the Bible, the Bible is about love. It's ultimately God's love for you and yours for God that's contained in what I would argue is the greatest love story ever written. The greatest, most incredible love story ever told is contained in God's word. It's a story of a people running away from love and a God who loved them too much to let them perish. It's a story about a, a bride needing redemption, about a people lost in the wilderness. It's a story, maybe for us, maybe for us. It's a story about a sinner in a frozen swamp in 2023. It's a story of somebody walking through a modern world carrying shame and carrying guilt. And because of the story unfolding in God's word, because of the reality of who Jesus was and is, it's a story that begins to redeem that. It's a story that begins to eliminate the guilt and the shame. It's a story that changes the trajectory of lives because of love. We should read the Bible because we need love, because we were created for love, because our deepest desire is love. We love sports. Why do we love sports? Because we are wired to be with others in community. We want to be part of something transcendent. We love the feeling of being about the same thing as others. That's about love at the end of the day. That's what it's about. Why do we join clubs? Why do we have hobbies? Why do we watch shows? Why do we, why, what, it's all about identity. I want to be loved. Why are people on Tinder swiping left and swiping right? Why are people chasing, we're chasing love. We're chasing somebody who might know us at our deepest parts and still accept us. Somebody who might understand our history and our brokenness and still choose to love us. The Bible is God's incredible love story for you and me, for his people it speaks to God's overwhelming love for us. John 3.16, the most famous passage in the Bible says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God so loved. God loved the world. It's a love story. And then how do we love him? How do we know him? How are we blessed by him? Jesus said, in one spot, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. My sheep listen to me. They know my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus is saying, if you just listen to my voice, the word of God, if you would just hear me, then you would know me. And if you know me, you wouldn't help but to love and follow me. And your life finds this cycle of beautiful, virtuous completeness. Deuteronomy 11, Old Testament, 13 through 15. Starts like this. If you indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to what? Love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. He will give you the rain for your land in its season, early rain, later rain. You may gather your grain, your wine, your oil. He gives you grass in your fields for your livestock. You shall eat and be full. 
Verse 18, he continues, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine, Scripture, in your heart and in your soul, bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as, as frontlets between your eyes. You'll teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Well, what's the command? The command is obey the command. God says, you want to find wholeness? You want to find purpose? You want to find life? Life is in the obedience of my word. To follow my ways is to treasure my words. Why? Because of love. Because of love. The command is what? To love the Lord your God. To love your Lord your God. How do you do that? Man, grab onto his word and hold on for dear life. Jesus finds you, invades your life, calls you into the deep because of love. When Jesus was asked how we should live, they say, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Matthew 22, he says this in verse 37. He says, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God. You should what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is sort of summarizing the totality of what you're going to get here by saying two things. One, love the Lord your God with everything you've got. And two, love your neighbor. Falls back on love God. Know him with everything you have. Search him out, seek him out, know him, follow his ways. And as you do that, the overflow of your life and the next kind of level command after you love God is love your neighbor. The God who loved you beckons you to swim in the depths of his love. It's like a swimming pool. God, God is like a swim. He wants you to just dive in, to swim in the depths of his. It's not dip your toe in once a month. Well, I read a little bit. It was boring. I opened it up and I just, sometimes I just go, Lord, give me a verse. Oh, set a boundary that they may not pass so they might not again cover the earth. Well, don't know what that means, but I checked the box. I did it. You and me, big man, I'm off. Got to go to the game. You know, that's, that's great, but that's not going to help you. That's not the point. That's not a relationship. That's like some sort of transactional thing I'm trying to do to check a box. That's not what he's asking you to do. He's saying, if you want to love me, you're going to want to know me. And if you're going to want to know me, you're going to find me here. You're going to find my character and my story. You're going to know everything about me. And as you hear that, you're going, if you dive in, don't dip in, dive in. You're going to know the fullness of what it means to swim in my love. And the beauty of that is once you're in the fullness of that, you ever do a cannonball in a pool? There will be some splash, right? There will be something overlapping the top. And that's what that looks like when we, begin to, we, we overflow with his love. It begins to spill out even of, of that relationship. It begins to spill into other places. It begins to exceed the places that we're in beyond the bounds of what we even thought was possible. 1 John says we love because he first loved us. Our love is a response to God's love for us. The Bible is God's love for you told on an epic scale. It's a personal letter to you, for you. Now contextually, I'm not saying that the book of Leviticus was written to you now. I'm saying that it is all God-breathed and useful for your correction and your reproof, for your training and your equipping. It is for you. 
It is God's invitation to learn how to love him and to love his people in return. It is God's invitation that you might know Jesus and know God by knowing his words and his character and his heart and his life. One of the first things you do when you meet someone who's special to you, you think maybe this could be the one. You start asking about their past. You want to know about their history. How did you grow up? What was your family like? What are you into? What are you allergic to? All the, You want to know everything. Because love compels you to want to know everything about this other soul you're with. When we love God and we're chasing God, it compels us to want to know the fullness of who he is. And people think this is, sounds like grueling. People go, man, I just can't get, it's such a big book and it's so old and it's, there's so many words and I don't understand it and I'm a little bit afraid of it. I just, ah, it feels like a lot. It feels like a burden. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, we read this a lot around here. From the message paraphrase, he says it this way. Are you tired, Jesus says. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace, and I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. So keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Life with Jesus is not designed to be a grueling slog or an academic adventure through things we don't understand. Jesus is inviting us to know him, to walk with him, to learn from him, to sit with him, to open up the gospel of John and go, Lord, just let me know you. And his offer is that we might find in following him fully, we might find free rhythms of grace, an invitation to the love story like no other, where you, you are the one being pursued. There's no greater love story in your life than the one where the creator of the universe sends his only son to pursue you, to redeem you, to rescue you. You are God's beloved. You are the one he is after. You are the one for whom he will give everything to redeem. Why? So that you might know him. So that you might know the depths of his love. And as you swim in the depths of his love, as you know the fullness of his security and his love and his approval and his satisfaction in who you are today, now, the overflow of your life as you love him with everything you've got is that you would also be loving your neighbor. That we might know God and then use our lives to make him known to others.